Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, another good morning to you, saints. If you have a Bible, I invite you to meet me in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings in chapter 8, in this book that we call the Bible, a book that is more precious than silver and gold, and even much refined gold. And as you turn there this morning, I wonder if any one of you, as you walked through the doors of our church this morning, had this question on your hearts. Has God forsaken me in my suffering? Has God given up on me in my sorrow and in my suffering and in my pain? Maybe this wasn't just a question that was on your mind and on your heart, but maybe this was the question. It was the only question that you could really think about. Without an answer to this question, you really couldn't think about much else in your life. It's an important question. Has God forsaken me in my suffering? And it's not just a question that we might ask in idle curiosity, as if we've thought through so many other things in the Christian life, now we need to probe into the mysteries of God. It's not an idle question. It's a serious question, and it demands an answer. When you're battered, when you're distraught, when you're depressed in pain, when you're suffering, you're often wondering, where is God in this mess? Well, I want to suggest that 2 Kings chapter 8 has an answer for us this morning. And even if that's not you this morning asking that question, my guess is someone to your right or left is probably asking that question. Has God forsaken me in my suffering? And whether or not it's you, we, we might often be tempted to look around our world and say, has God left this burning trash heap that we call a world? Has he left all of us collectively in our suffering? Well, again, I think the book of Kings has something to teach us here. It might be a surprising answer, but we need to work there together. And to do so, I want to group the next few minutes under four words. I'll give them to you up front, but we'll look at them in sequence. The first word is restoration. The second word is assassination. The third word is illumination. And the fourth word is appropriation. Restoration assassination, illumination, and appropriation. And I want to title this message, Sovereign Sorrow. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings 8, and we'll read the first six verses together. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For Yahweh has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appeared to the king for her house and for her land. 
And Gehazi said, my Lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. One more word of prayer. Our father in heaven, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that he would be our true teacher this morning that he would soften our hearts, that we might not be hardened to your word, but that we might receive your word with meekness, and that it might bear much fruit in our lives, 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first word that we're looking at is restoration in verses 1 to 6. And the story begins with a recollection of a conversation that Elisha had with a Shunammite woman. Well, it's actually not much of a conversation. It's actually just one line from the conversation. And one of the conversation partners, uh, uh, Elisha, essentially said, uh, get out of town because there's not going to be any food here in a few years. Now, this woman, we've met her before, but she does what she always does. And that is she submits her life to the word of God through his messenger, Elisha. If you've been here with us in 2 Kings chapter 4, we met this woman, uh, a Shunammite woman. And when Elisha gives her this word to leave town, she goes to the land of the Philistines. Now, this isn't exactly paradise for the people of God when we think about where they want to live. Philistia is far from home. It's a pagan land. They're opposed to Yahweh and to his servants. And so this is not a good place for this woman to be. But she gets a head start on the famine, and so she leaves. Well, we learn that the famine is over, and so she returns home. She left her house behind, and she's going to try to get her home back. But now that she's back in the land, she's, at least two things are different. One, she seems to be without a husband. Uh, we're not told this explicitly, but it would have been strange for her to be advocating for her and her family on her own. In chapter 4, her husband was with her. So in this famine, she seemed to have lost her husband. Well, she also seems to have lost her home. And this is why she's visiting the king. She wants to get her house back. Now, meanwhile, as she's going to the king, the king is having a conversation with a guy named Gehazi. And we've met Gehazi before. This is Elisha's servant. And all of a sudden, the king has some sort of interest in this, uh, what might be a celebrity prophet at the time, Elisha. And he asked Gehazi, hey, Gehazi, tell, tell me a bit about Elisha. Tell me about some of his amazing works. So Gehazi, uh, he obliges and he tells him a couple stories. And then he gets to one of Elisha's best moments. He tells him the story of the Shunammite couple. He tells the king, I, I went to Shunam one time and I, I met this couple Uh, They were advanced in in years. They didn't have any children, and they showed me extraordinary hospitality. I came through town so often that they decided to build me a house, uh, build me a room in their house. And so every time I passed through this land, I stayed with them. Well, they were so hospitable for me that I asked them one day, is there anything I can do for you? They said, no. Well, then Yahweh told Elisha that He's going to give this couple. They've never had children. They want children, but they've never had children. He's going to give them a son. Now, ordinarily, this is good news, but for this woman, this almost seemed too good to be true. She essentially says, 
Elisha, don't get my hopes up. If this is not true, do not play on my heartstrings like this. Don't say that God is going to give me a son if he's not going to give me a son. Would you believe it or not, but Yahweh in his almighty power gives this couple a son, a child. What a gift from God. When they weren't seeking it any longer, God gives them a son. Well, when the son grows to be old, he develops acute head pain. He's out in the field and he he develops a substantial headache. It actually leads to his death. Now, the mom at this point is like, you got to be kidding me. I didn't ask for this son. I was fine. Then you give me this son and he grows up and he dies prematurely. You got to be kidding me. So she calls for Elisha and she still trusts God's word. And as Gehazi's in the king's presence telling this story to the king, He's about to get to the punchline, I would suspect. We're not told, but he's about to get to the punchline that here comes Elisha and he raises this son to newness of life. The text says he was dead, but God raised him to new life. And as he's delivering the punchline, in walks the woman and her son into the king's presence. Coincidentally, in walks the woman and her son. She's going there to see if she can get her house back. And the king, of course, probably blown away by what just happened. He's like, sure, you can have your house back. Not only can you have your house back, but I'll give you all the produce from your land of the years that you were gone. She gets far more abundantly than she ever dared ask or imagine. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Now, I think the author of Kings is trying to get us to see one thing here, and that is the sovereignty of God in this story. The sovereignty of God in this story. I think we see it in at least three ways. We see the sovereignty of God in the famine. Uh, I I hope you still have your Bibles open. Look at verse 1. Who calls for the famine? Yahweh calls for the famine. Could it be that Yahweh is sovereign over both feast and famine? According to 2 Kings 8, the answer is yes. It's hard to miss, and I said it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but there's nothing coincidental about this conversation. This is, the only, this is the other thing that Yahweh is sovereign over. As soon as Gehazi starts telling this story, in walks the woman and her son. He's sovereign over this conversation. This is God's sovereignty. It's not a coincidence. It's not serendipitous. It's not lucky. It's not happenstance. This is the sovereignty of God. And he's also sovereign over the restoration and the abundance that he gives this woman. She's not necessarily owed the land back. We have have no reason to believe that she was owed this. And she's certainly not owed all the produce of the land that developed while she was gone. But look what God does by his almighty power. He gives her way more than she ever imagined. Now you say, okay, Eric, that's a nice 10 cent theological word, the sovereignty of God. Uh, I hear that thrown around. What do you mean by that? Here's how I define it. God's sovereignty is the assurance that absolutely nothing in all of creation is outside Yahweh's control. This includes all of time, past, present, and future, and all things, seen and unseen. There's not one thing in all of creation that the creator himself does not uphold, sustain, and rule over. There's not a single famine. There's not a single sorrow in your life that he's not sovereign over. There's not a single conversation that you've had that he's not sovereign over. 
There's not a single harvest in all the fields in the world that Yahweh is not sovereign over. None of this is outside his control. It was true then, brothers and sisters, and it's true this morning as well. Well, my definition might not scratch the itch for you. Let me give you a definition from a good Baptist catechism. Uh, I'm going to use providence and sovereignty interchangeable here. This is a bit longer, but I think it's a lot more eloquent and probably more helpful. The question is this from the Orthodox catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? Here's the answer. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that both leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hands. When we talk about the providence and sovereignty of God, this is what we're talking about here. That there's not one atom in all the universe that he has, that has not accounted for. He's sovereign over our sorrow, the sorrow we see in famine, and he's sorrow over the joys that we experience in life, the restoration that this woman experiences. Now, beloved, I hope it's already becoming clear that Yahweh has been sovereign over every circumstance in your week uh, this week, every circumstance that you've had. You might have walked in here thinking, not even my closest friends, maybe not even my spouse understands the suffering and the circumstances that I've experienced this week. But Yahweh knows, and he has not left it unaccounted for. Now, keep in mind, First and Second Kings, who are they written to? They're written to the exiles. Now, these are people who are living outside of the land, and they want to go home. Now, doesn't this story serve as a little sample as a little microcosm of what he can do for the whole people of God? Doesn't the woman experience a little exile of her own seven years outside of her land? And God graciously both sends her away so that she can survive and also brings her back in? Wouldn't this be great comfort to the exiles to know that if God can do this for a Shunammite woman and her son, then certainly he can do this for us as a community. This would have been a little crumb of good news for them that maybe God hasn't forsaken us in exile. Maybe God is sovereign both over our exile and over our hopeful return. Is this the God that you know this morning? Is this the God that we know? A God who is intricately and imminently involved in the world that we inhabit. Is he alive to you? Is he alive to us? Do we serve a living God or a dead God? You know, some of my dearest friends in life and even some of my family members, they, uh, they experienced a conversion from a godless lifestyle to a vibrant Christianity in a Pentecostal church. Now, I'm not here advocating for all of Pentecostal theology or practice, but here's one thing that left an impression on my friends and family members. When they walked into this church, they were convinced that these people knew that God was alive and they were living like it. And say what you want about Pentecostals, but they live like that. That God is here, he's at work, and he's doing something in our time. And something about that, God used to soften their hearts. And now the actual living God, by the power of his gospel, actually brought them to new life in Christ. 
Maybe you're new to our gathering this morning. I'd be, interest, I'd be interested to take a poll on the way out. I'm not going to do it, but I'd be interested. If we asked you, after, after our gathering, did you get a sense that we just had a nice religious service? Or did you get the sense that whether I believe it or not, those people believe God is here? How would our parish neighborhood respond to that question if they came to an average gathering here on Sundays or Wednesdays? It's a question worth asking about. But if God is sovereign, then this changes everything. This changes everything. He's involved in our lives. He's involved in the restoration, in the exile, in the suffering, and in the sorrow. God is sovereign. And this is what I think this first story is trying to get us to see in 2 Kings chapter 8, restoration. Well, that's the first word. Let's move on to the second word, assassination. What a nice point for a sermon, verses 7 to 15, assassination. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of Yahweh through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. But Yahweh has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. And you will kill their their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, Yahweh has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Well, merely the mention of Elisha in the first story was good enough for the woman to get her land back. All of a sudden in the story, the camera pans back and we're right back in Elisha's presence. This time he's in Damascus and the pagan king, Ben-Hadad, not a covenant king, the pagan king, Ben-Hadad, hears that this celebrity prophet is in town. And so he's sick And he wants to know through Elisha, if Elisha's God has anything to say about his sickness, am I going to to recover from my sickness? He wants a definitive answer. So he sends this guy named Hazael. And Hazael asks him straight up, hey, the king wants to know, my man, is he going to recover from his sickness? Now, we've already established under the first word that Yahweh is sovereign over all things. So we know that he is sovereign even over the sicknesses of evil pagan kings like Ben-Hadad. And since he's sovereign over them, he's able to give a definitive answer. He actually gets what he's looking for, this, this pagan king. And Elisha, I think, says something like this. It's, it, there's debate about exactly how this sentence is, is structured. But I think this is what he's essentially saying. If all things remain equal, he's going to recover from this sickness. 
In terms of the illness itself, he's not going to die from the illness. But he is going to die. He is going to die. That's the message he gets. He's like, okay, go tell him that he's certainly going to recover. Well, what this means, brothers and sisters, is that Yahweh is sovereign over your sickness this morning. I know there are people in this congregation who deal with chronic illness. There are people who wake up every day in severe pain. I'm not suggesting that this answers all of your questions, but can I assure you that Yahweh is sovereign over your sickness, and he can be sovereign over your healing in this life. And whether or not he does that, he will be sovereign over your resurrected and restored body in the new creation. Yahweh is sovereign over sickness and disease. But he's also sovereign over assassinations. This is a strange story here. He tells them, like I mentioned, you're still going to die. And so the, he does something strange. That is Elisha. He just starts staring at the king. Or sorry, he just starts staring at Hazael. They're not talking, just staring. And Hazael gets a bit uncomfortable, especially what happens next. All of a sudden, Elisha just starts weeping. Now, this military man is not used to being in the presence of grown men in puddles of tears. And so he asks him, my man, what are you crying about? What, what happened here? You seem to have an answer here. And Elisha says, I know what you're about to do. I know what you're about to do. I'm crying because I know that you, Hazael, you're about to wreak more havoc on the people of Israel than you even know. You're going to be ruthless to them. You'll burn down their fortresses. You'll kill the young men with the sword. And then it gets so graphic, it's almost hard to read again. It's almost unbearable. You're going to dash in pieces their little ones, and you're going to rip open their pregnant women. This is God's servant saying this to a pagan king about what he's going to do to his own people before it happens. Now, it's at this point that some of you might be saying, this is gross, this is evil, and this is why, you know, someone, someone insisted that I come to church this morning, but this is why I think this whole Christianity thing is a joke. It's because of passages like this. I'm not denying that it's gross. I'm not denying that this is evil. I'm not denying that this is easy to wrestle with here. This is when a lot of people start pointing fingers at God, and, and they start to say, how could God allow something like this? Well, let me ask you something. Aren't we quick to point and wag our finger at God when things go bad? But then when he gives us far more than we ever imagined, we're very slow. Sometimes we never thank him for that. We seem to accuse God when he's sovereign over the bad. But then when things are going well, oh, we forget about God. It doesn't answer all the questions, but why are we so quick to indict the creator and sustainer of all things, and yet we're so slow to give him thanks for his sovereignty over the beautiful things in life? According to 2 Kings 8, he's not just sovereign over famine and restoration. He's also sovereign over assassinations and wide-scale destruction. I wonder if that sounds like a world that you inhabit this morning, wide-scale destruction. 
And it's not just 2 Kings 8 that teaches that, so- that Yahweh is sovereign over this. In 1 Kings 19 is when we're actually introduced to Hazael. Here's his mission. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. In other words, God anoints these three men, Hazael, Jehu, Elisha, to put to death the house of Ahab. Ahab, gross evil by this king who is supposed to be a representative of God. They've been anointed to bring this whole idolatrous house down. He's using Hazael. He told us in 19, chapter 19, he was going to do this. And now in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, he's actually inching closer to this. So even though this is a very graphic scene in God's word, it's good news. Because God is bringing justice where injustice has reigned. He's bringing justice to his people. So it's good news on one hand. It's also bad news because more and more people are being churned out in the factory that we call this world and they're becoming idolaters. And therefore God's judgment is ramping up. Well, the story goes on. Hazael is a bit shocked. He's in unbelief. But then he goes from Elisha's presence and he does exactly what he told them he would do. He dips a cloth in water and he assassinates the king. Now notice, all things remaining the same, the king didn't die from his sickness. When do you see someone suffocated to death and you say they died from the flu? They died from being suffocated to death. He, he would have recovered had Hazael not suffocated him to death. So Elisha never lied to Hazael. We see, we see Yahweh's sovereignty here. Now, when I say that God is sovereign over all these things. I'm not indicting God. I'm not saying that God is evil. Don't misunderstand me here. He takes no pleasure in what he is doing here. Uh, God, through his prophet Ezekiel, says this in Ezekiel 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Yahweh takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You can take that to the bank. And so I think as we see Elisha crying here, we should be hearing divine sniffles that he is not pleased with what he is about to do to the people of Israel. It's just, but he's not taking pleasure in it. God takes no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. Elisha knows that this needs to be done. And yet his heart still yearns for God's people. You know, this doesn't make it any less sad. But to know that God is sovereign over the wide-scale destruction in our life means that we're not just living in a perpetual war zone with no hope of peace. It might not be as good as we want it to be, but it's certainly not as bad as it could be. And certainly God is ruling over this and he can bring something good out of all of it. Comfort is what the sovereignty of God gives to his people. If we deny this, if we deny the fact that Yahweh is ruling over all of this, then we deny ourselves any hope of anything getting better. If he's not powerful over the bad, how can he be powerful over the good? Well, those are the first two words. The next two we'll take at a significantly quicker clip. So let's look at verses 16 to 24 where we see illumination. 
In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zaire with all his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Illumination. Chapter 3 of 2 Kings is the last time that we really focused on the southern kingdom of Judah. So for the last five chapters, we've been in the north, and all of a sudden, the author of Kings goes back down to Judah. It's like, where'd where'd this come from? There's a little bit of geographical whiplash here. And we're asking the question, things are going terrible in Israel. Could things be going any better in Judah? Is it any better here? And the answer, according to this section, is no. It's pretty sad, but things are just as bad in Judah as they are in Israel. Now, here's a little tip for you. This is one of the most disorienting sections in all of 2 Kings because the kings of both kingdoms now have the same names and their fathers have similar names and your mind's about to explode because you can't keep the names straight. It's hard for me to keep them straight. It's very disorienting. Now, here's a little tip for you. When you get to sections like this in the Bible, instead of trying to labor over every minor detail, instead of trying to figure out what's happening with the earthly kings, Try to see what the king of kings is doing. Try to focus on the main character of the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. God is the main character. Be asking yourself, what is Yahweh up to in this story? Well, in this story, the southern king, Jehoram, he commits a crucial mistake according to verse 18. He marries the wrong lady. He marries the wrong lady. He marries a daughter of Ahab. Now, what do we know about Ahab? We've known for a long time that Ahab is going down. So as soon as he mixes himself up with Ahab's daughter, he's essentially written his own death note. Ahab's going down, and now Joram is going down. This is the sovereignty of God, even ruling and reigning over this dark, dark episode that the people who are supposed to be as light to all nations are now just as dark as everyone else. But we're given this incredible editorial comment in verse 19. It's an interpretation of everything that's going on here. Look at 19. Yet the Lord, Yahweh, was not willing to destroy Judah. Why? For the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So even though both Israel and Judah seem to have forsaken Yahweh, even though this thing seems to be over, yet Yahweh was not willing to snuff out the lamp that he promised to David and to his sons forever. In other words, 
God is sovereign over the goal of history. God is sovereign over the story of history, over the telos of history, over the whole direction that history is moving. History is telling a story, and it's a story that resounds to the glory of God. And even though his people seem to be doing everything they can to destroy the story, he's not willing to give up on the story. Yahweh is sovereign over world history, and he's bringing it to the culmination of his glory. And even his rebellious people can't keep this down. Now, this, this image of a lamp is really fascinating here. Because a lamp oftentimes isn't all the light you want, but it's all the light you need. A few weeks ago, some of you know that me and Will went to some of our, some of our people, Dwight and Maureen Silva. They have a place up in Michigan that they let us stay at for a night. And uh, we worked a whole day in Manistee, Michigan. And around 7 o'clock p.m., I, I, I thought I was just really unusually tired from a long days of work and travel. And so we headed to bed early. Uh, but it wasn't exactly fatigue that I was experiencing. I'd actually gotten food poisoning from food that I'd had a, a day or two before. Now, I was up every single hour on the hour using the men's room. And uh, the, the Silvas in this Airbnb that they have, they installed these motion-censored lights everywhere. Because it's dark. You're in the middle of kind of nowhere, Michigan, new house. I've never felt this bad in my life and the only thing that could have made me feel worse is as I'm trying to get to the bathroom if I ran into a wall in a house that I barely know. But they installed these lights, these little lamps. As soon as I got out of the bed, the lamp led me to the men's room. That lamp was all I needed in that moment. It might not have been all the light that I, I wanted, but it was all I needed to get from A to B successfully. And I'm sure the Silvos are grateful that they installed those lights as well. The lamp of God's promise cannot be snuffed out. When the people are in exile, all they need is a little light to say, God has not given up on us. He still got a lamp that he committed to his servant David and to his sons forever. Yahweh is sovereign over all things. So even if it looks like the providence of God is uprooting his promise, we know that the promise of God is sure to come true. This is why we base our lives on the promises of God, not the providence of God. We take great comfort in providence, knowing that all things are under his rule and reign, but we bank our lives on the promises of God because the providence of God never contradicts the promises of God, even if it looks like it. And God promised to David that you'll always have a king on your throne forever. The lamp for the house of David. Good news, beloved. History is not untethered from a great plan of God. God is moving the world in a direction, and no matter how dark it gets, there is a goal in mind, and that is the glory of God throughout all the earth, and we can take that to the bank. 
He's sovereign over famine. He's sovereign over restoration. He's sovereign over assassinations. And he's sovereign over this illumination, which is his promise. He will fulfill his word. He's watching over it to fulfill it. And we can take that to the bank. Well, that's our third word, illumination. Let's move now to the final word, verse 25 to 29, where we see appropriation. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. End of chapter. Well, another king and another idolater. Notice both in verses 18 and verses 27 how these kings walked. They walked in the way of Ahab. That's about the worst insult that you could give to a king according to Yahweh's standards. They have so appropriated the worship of the northern king Israel that Ahab is mentioned six times in this short paragraph. Ahab's been dead a while, but he's mentioned six times. This is how much they've appropriated the worship of Israel. But Yahweh was sovereign over all of this. There's a parallel account given in 2 Chronicles. Look at what this says in 2 Chronicles 22.7. But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to visit Joram. It was ordained by God that this king was going to die. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. So you think, okay, he's got a lamp forever in the house of, of David. What's he going to do with these kings? He, he ordains this one's death because he's an idolater. Yahweh is sovereign over all of these things, even though it's perplexing. They seem to be doing the very opposite of what they should be doing at this point. And yet God is in control. This section of 2 Kings, it's like a horror movie. It's like an R-rated movie. But God is involved. This is what we'll see over the next few chapters, especially. Now, maybe you read ahead this morning and read 2 Kings 8, and you're like, what on earth is someone going to say when they preach this text this morning? I'm sure you still have more questions, but I hope that you see at least one line that we can trace through this whole chapter, and it's this, that God is sovereign over suffering and sorrow. God is sovereign, friends, over suffering and sorrow. If he was sovereign over suffering and sorrow then, who's to say he lost his sovereignty today in your life, in the suffering that you're experiencing, even though it might seem so deep and so significant that you can hardly wake up in the morning? God is sovereign over it. Now, again, I'm worried that this is going to be taken out of context. I'm not indicting God here. I'm not saying he's responsible for these things or that he himself is evil in that he's ruling over evil. 
There's a great novel by Marilyn Robinson, and, it, and there's a pastor. He's an old pastor, and he had a son in his old age. And he's writing in his journal to his son so that when he dies, his son might have some recollection of his dad's life. And, and the topic of providence comes up in his journal, and this is what he says, and this is what I want to say to you all. He says, I've always worried that when I say the insulted or the downtrodden are within the providence of God, it will be taken by some people to mean that it is not a grave thing, an evil thing, to insult or oppress. The whole teaching of the Bible is explicitly contrary to that idea. Beloved, even though God is sovereign over your suffering, it doesn't mean that's not a grave thing. It is a grave thing. Don't misunderstand me. It's a serious thing. It's a grave thing but it is still a true thing. And it is the God that we see in the Bible and in the world working around us. This is a serious thing, but it's a true thing. Yahweh's sovereignty over your suffering, here's what it means. It means the worst thing in your life isn't the last thing in your life. It might seem like your whole world is falling into pieces, but that's not the final word. Yahweh's sovereign grace has the final word in your life. And before we try to relegate this principle and use that dreadful sentence that that's just an Old Testament thing, isn't this the exact message that the whole life of Jesus Christ makes? That this one that they call Jesus Christ of Nazareth that he was indeed the very son of God, the one who has ruled and reigned throughout all eternity here in the flesh, and that this sovereign God comes into the world that we inhabit. And was there ever a man who was so bombarded by suffering and sorrow as there was the Lord Jesus? He was hemmed in on every side by sinners and sufferers. They, they were desperate to try to get to see him. He was well acquainted with sorrow. He was well acquainted with suffering. He was well acquainted with grief. Has there ever been one who's been so accustomed to these things? And yet in and, all, in and through all of these things, here was the sovereign God himself. And he's sovereign over the sorrow and the pain. There are a hundred pla- places in the Bible I could take you to show you this. Let me just point out two stories. He had a special, there's a special family in the heart of Jesus Christ. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, these siblings. And he, he, loved, he loved these siblings. He really loved them. I mean, he loves everyone, of course. But he really loved these people. And he was notified when he was away from this family that Lazarus had gotten sick. He knew about Lazarus's sickness. But he waits four days until after Lazarus dies to go see Lazarus. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, if this is the sovereign Lord, why didn't he go get Lazarus? He's dead. He could have saved him. He could have saved his life. He could have healed him from this sickness. But he waits. Why? To show that he's sovereign over sickness and even death itself, the Lord Jesus. He's sovereign over these things. So we read in John 11 that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Here is God incarnate, weeping at the news 
of the death of his friend. He's sovereign over suffering and sorrow, and he's sovereign over death itself. He's deeply moved, and he weeps. But you know what else that means? That he's also sovereign over life. And even though he's weeping there in a moment, he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is, and he just says in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Could it be that our God is not only sovereign over suffering and sorrow, but also sovereign over life and resurrection and fullness of life? He can't be one without the other. I hope you're beginning to see that. He must be sovereign over our suffering in order to have the sovereignty to raise us to newness of life. That's the first episode. The second episode, he decides to set his face towards Jerusalem. And we know what's happening in Jerusalem. He's prophesied three times. The the religious leaders are going to pin me up on a tree and I'm going to die. And yet he sets his face towards that location. And as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, he laments. Look at what it says in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He knows what this city has done to the prophets and he knows what this city is about to do to the prophet of prophets. He knows what they're about to do to him. They're going to pin him up on a tree, crucify him, and leave him there to die. Spitting on him, flogging him, crucifying the Son of God, the Sovereign Lord. He's not only sovereign over Lazarus' death and over the death of the family members and friends in your life, but he's sovereign over his own death. This didn't happen on accident to Jesus. His whole life, in a sense, was a long passion narrative, a long narrative toward that cross. This was the whole reason he came to the planet, to show that he is sovereign over suffering and sorrow. And friends, let me just give you one more thing. In the book of Revelation, we have so many questions that even the brightest of scholars can't answer. But you know what? There's one thing we know when we read the book of Revelation, that all suffering that will happen to Christ's precious bride is under his sovereign control. There's not one thing that will happen to the church today, tomorrow, or forever that he is not ruling and reigning over. Our God is is sovereign over your suffering and over your sorrow, and that is good news. That is good news here, friends. So you say, Eric, okay, how do I apply this to my life? Let me go back to the catechism because this puts it so perfectly. How does the knowledge of God's providence help us? This is how we apply this text. We can be patient when things go against us. We can be patient when things go against us. Brothers and sisters, if life is going against you, let me implore you by the mercies of God to be patient. Just be patient by the power of the spirits. We can be thankful when things go well. Is God blessing you more than you ever imagined? Walk out of here whistling with gratitude to God. Be thankful when the providence of God makes things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. 
This is the good news of God's sovereignty. Nothing can separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Beloved, in the power of the gospel, be unmovable, be unshakable, be grounded and rooted in the love of God that does not wax or wane. It is constant because it is a sovereign love and he is sovereignly ruling over you. Thank you for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word and for more info, for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.